Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 199. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And for the first time in a long time, we step back in the casino to play Monoreal Radio Disney Plus Roulette. It has been so long since we did it between the move down to Florida, between this just kind of like being the year of the many, many monumental anniversaries. We kind of got away from doing the roulette, and I have to be honest with you, I kind of missed it a little bit. Mm. I'd say we have a 50% winability rate, give or take. I think that's fair. I think so, right? So it's funny because we were discussing off air before we came on how we are not ready to get into spooky season yet. Everybody's ready for spooky season. Pumpkin spice lattes came back to Starbucks this week, and we're like, no, it's still too early. It's still too early. We're not ready for horror movies, so we jump into the random number generator and land on a DCOM Halloween film, because that's just how it goes on Monoreal Radio. (laughs) I will say, though, since the move down to Florida, I get why people are rushing fall, rushing Christmas, because when we were in New York, I mean, I'm just a summer person by nature. Right. I always wanted to hang on and squeeze every single drop out of summer. Now that I can walk outside in September and it's still 92 degrees, which it was today, I kind of understand the rush on the the rush on the PSLs. Sure. Well, with all of that being said, we are here to discuss 2000's Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. Had you ever seen this movie prior to landing on it for this roulette? I'm not sure I had even heard of it because I keep thinking, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. I don't know why Mm. because the titles really aren't that close, but somehow that's what I keep going back to. I thought I had seen this. When we sat to watch it, you asked me if you've seen this. I thought that I had seen it, but I think I only saw like bits and pieces of it because I remembered a little bit of it. But I didn't remember enough of it where any of it came back to me as we were watching it. But I was well aware that this movie existed because, like, just by virtue of, like, deep diving into Disney+, and I do it more frequently than not, like, I just kept seeing this over and over again. So, while cautiously optimistic, I was glad we landed on this for a roulette. This is also more your bag than it is mine. Like, you love Fright Night vampires are so much more your thing i'm more zombie yeah twilight nearly ruined them oh but yeah i'm a big fright night fan i'm sure that there are going to be a couple of parallels i know one a huge parallel between this and fright night and it like it's not what i expected to find in this film <laughs> it's kind of like all right I, you know what i'm just gonna leave it there because i don't want to spoil too much but we have a lot of questions to ask Does the film feel dated now? Did they lay into the tropes a little too much? This movie was made in 2000. Does it feel like the 1990s? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. So make sure you check them out. Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on either Instagram or Etsy. They've got a lot of really great 
Halloween options for straw charms, and it is never too early to get a jump on your holiday shopping, and you can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. All right. We meet 13-year-old Adam Hansen, a boy obsessed with horror films, as well as his 16-year-old sister Chelsea and his 8-year-old brother Taylor. As their mom, Lynette, comes home from work, she gets upset with Adam for letting Taylor watch a vampire movie that he is now obsessing over. We also learn that their parents are divorced and their father is remarrying. Good on you, Disney. Progress. The next day at school, <laughs> Adam's best friend Duffy tells him that he obtained backstage passes to the Headless Horseman concert at the Harvest Festival, but when Adam gets in trouble for not doing his homework, Lynette punishes him, costing him his concert ticket. When Chelsea teases him over the punishment, she too gets punished and is forced to give up a date with her boyfriend, Peter. Adam and Chelsea decide their mom needs her own date as a distraction, so they read the personal ads and find the quote-unquote perfect gentleman for their mom and set up a meeting at the supermarket later that night. After a sob story about chocolate chip pancakes lures Lynette to the store, the family meets the mysterious Dimitri, who asks Lynette to dinner the following night while also being being followed by a man in a trench coat and hat who is searching for a vampire. Taylor sees Dimitri transform into a bat, but no one wants to listen to him as they assume he's still scared from the movie. Meanwhile, Adam learns Duffy gave his concert ticket away to Boomer, an older bully at school, so Adam promises Boomer a date with Chelsea in exchange for the concert ticket. Despite Lynette's hesitations, she and Dimitri set off for their date while Taylor calls Malachi Van Helsing, famed vampire hunter. He then leaves to try and intercept Lynette to save her, so Adam and Chelsea set off to stop him as they don't believe his story. They arrive at the restaurant where the date is happening and set up a fake trick to show Taylor that Dimitri isn't a vampire. However, when Adam doesn't see Dimitri's reflection in a mirror, Taylor's story is confirmed. Of course, they don't tell Taylor this. Taylor is then left at home with his babysitter while Adam and Chelsea set off to save Lunette. Van Helsing, meanwhile, arrives at the Hanson home, and Taylor realizes that he was right all along and follows Malachi against his wishes. The four of them track Lynette and Dimitri throughout the night and wind up at the Harvest Festival, where Chelsea learns of the deal that Adam made with Boomer, but they quickly reconcile to help save their mom. When Adam interferes as Dimitri puts Lynette under his spell, he exposes himself as a vampire and threatens to kill him if he interferes any further. Remembering that Dimitri told them where he lived, they head to his house to try and stop them. Taylor and Malachi are doing the same. At the house, Adam and Chelsea steal Dimitri's coffin and put it in a lake so he can't get to it before the sun rises. Dimitri then captures Chelsea and strikes a deal with Adam where they trade the coffin for Chelsea. As Dimitri double-crosses them, Van Helsing and Taylor arrive, but Van Helsing is quickly subdued, but Taylor intervenes to save him. Chelsea and Adam are then captured by Dimitri, but Lynette, out of love for her children, snaps out of the spell that Dimitri put her under. She pushes Dimitri into the coffin where Van Helsing nails it shut with silver-plated nails, and with Dimitri now captured and on his way to Van Helsing's special hiding place in the South Pole, they all head home to go have their chocolate chip pancake breakfast. Van Helsing and all. Um, alrighty. So, 
let's go right to the beginning of the film. When we first, when we watched it for the first time, the movie opens on, it, it opens on the, okay, so the movie opens on the movie that I wanted to figure out how to articulate it, and there's no way. The movie opens on the movie that Adam is watching. It opens on a fake out, essentially. It's such a good fake out. It really is, because they dipped just before I went, oh, God. No, you didn't say, oh, God. You, you did say, oh, God. Because you, like many other people, thought that this was going to be like the hyper cheesy opening to a decom where they were setting up some backstory. I thought it was a flashback. Exactly. And, and, and so did I. So when, when you see that they zoom out, when you hear the phone ring, when Peter calls Chelsea and the phone rings and they don't react at all and it cuts out and you see that Adam's watching television, it was spectacular. It was great. And then it falls completely flat because from the minute that phone rings, it is just trope on trope on trope with hot fudge trope, whip trope, and a cherry trope on top. Let's start with the fact that... Now, okay, let me let me take a stab at this. Is it the, the older sister and the younger brother bickering over nonsense? Is that one of the tropes? Yes, and then another scoop of scared kid brother and the whipping of single mom trying to hold it all together. Can we also just comment on how Chelsea gets mad that Adam is watching the TV and it's turned up too loud, yet she is the one that's on the cordless phone? So rude. I could understand if this was an 80s movie when you are literally tied to all kids. Once upon a time, the phones were in the wall. And there was a long, if you were lucky, there was a long cord where you could have the option to move to another room. A lot of the times you were in your living room, in the den, there was a TV in that room and you couldn't go anywhere else. You were stuck within like two or three feet of that phone. A lot of these Though I feel like most people had them in their kitchen. Yeah, I also think a lot of kids now don't even know what a home phone is. We have one because I refuse to not have a landline in For all those spam callers. Uh, But anyway... um, yeah, it was a cordless phone. She had every option to move. Why would you take the call where he is watching the movie? Not to mention if it's your boyfriend, like, wouldn't you want to go up to your room for privacy? I mean, exposition. They're they're trying to set up that they have this bickering relationship. Obviously, it's the whole... It's the whole premise of the film is based off of them not getting along... I mean, for the most part, you're right. It, like, it is completely tropey, right? Let me ask you this now, because I know you've got a lot of tropes and you're, we're going to talk about them. Um, is there a part of you that forgives these tropes because this is, I keep wanting to call it a 90s decom, even though it did come out in the year 2000, but it's a decom. It's in the year 2000. Does it get a pass for some of those tropes just based on that alone? No, in fact, I will go harder on it because it's a 2000s movie and it feels like 90. I keep forgetting that this came out in 2000. I'm going to call this a 90s movie so many times tonight. It's not even funny. But that's exactly it. It feels like one. So that's where I'm not going to be very forgiving on some of these tropes. You know what trope I picked up on too, carried over from the 90s, large single parent 90s home. Is that a trope? Think about all of the film and television in the 90s. Full House. Now, he was a widower, but Full House. Who worked in television. Who worked in television. On a morning show. Large House in San Francisco. Similarly, Mrs. Doubtfire. 
divorcee living in a large house in San Francisco. Was this a trope of the 90s? Um, Looking back, because it was done so many times, you could make that argument. But my rationale for it was always alimony. And Mrs. Doubtfire, I will shoot you down right now because... He had a good job as a voiceover artist on a steady show. He was on a, a franchised show that came back for multiple seasons. And really, that was her money. That was Miranda's money. And her begonias, darn it. Her begonias. All right. Um, so the like jump right into I'm the mom. I'm a little overworked. Things are a little out of control. Jump into... Adam's bedroom where it's monster movie, monster movie, monster movie all over the wall. This, we're going to have a difference in opinion on this. I'm going to let you go first. I actually don't hate it, but I will say on first viewing, it terrified me. Because if you're going to have that many, not even wink and nods, just flat out tributes to all of these classic vampire movies i was like okay clearly somebody's done their homework clearly the the director is a fan of vampire movies you better deliver so there was a bit of a pit in my stomach that this scene set up um i don't want to say too much more because i don't want to give away my my full thoughts on the film okay but this had the potential to be a disaster. I think perhaps it's different coming from the male perspective of I was about Adam's age. Adam's 13 years old. In the year 2000, I was 14 years old. We're about the same age at the time that this film comes out. And when I had something that I loved, whether it be Kiss or the Islanders or the Yankees, you couldn't see not a drip of paint from a wall because my room was plastered and cluttered with as much stuff as I could get. And it didn't even matter what it was. If it was a poster, if it was... I would just clip things out of the newspaper and stick them on my wall. So, like... I didn't mind that this is how his bedroom looked because, to be honest with you, that's exactly how my bedroom looked. It just wasn't vampires. Oh, mine too. But it wasn't even an eclectic mix. It was all in sync. It was like 90% Justin Timberlake over all of my wall space and then the rest of the, I hate to say the rest of them because I love in sync. It was Joey, Chris, JC, and Lance taking up the other 10%. But anyway, I digress. Um, my issue is not with a 13 year old having, you know, things that they love put on their wall and calling it decor. My issue is that if you're going to go that hard for vampire movies, you better make it good. And by good, I mean, don't rip anything off from the films that you grew up on and don't have that air of ego where you think you're doing it better, especially in a decom where you can't really lean into horror. So that's part of where, again, I had that knot in my stomach of how are you going to find this kind of a balance? 
Yeah, and we'll talk about that as the movie plays out. Let's talk about another trope that was such a thing in the 90s. Deadbeat Dad? Deadbeat Dad. Deadbeat Dad. Well, we don't know he's a deadbeat. We just know that they are divorced. What is interesting is that Lynette has this whole thing planned out, this speech had with all of her kids that already knew that her ex-husband was getting remarried and she's the last to find out. I actually really like this scene because as soon as she pulled the wedding invitation out of the mail, I was like, oh, this is so contrived. But the way that they did the exposition through the dialogue of, oh, well, dad took us out last weekend and he already asked and and Taylor's going to be the ring bearer and I'm going to do this and Chelsea's going to do that. Um, I actually sort of like the way that that unfolded. Um, it, it's kind of a jerk move on the dad's part, uh, but it gave us enough exposition about the relationship with the dad and as well as the relationship with the mom because he's like, you're still the bomb. So he could tell that she was feeling uncomfortable about it and he put her at ease. And I, I think they actually handled that really well. And I think that they did a good job building a, a good relationship with Lynette and her kids. Yes. Um, just in that scene alone, you do so much like fleshing out of the character in, I'm not going to call it a throwaway scene because obviously that's a very deep conversation that one is to have with their children. Um, and they make it very funny, but they flesh so much out of Lynette and what her relationship is with her kids. I think it was really tactfully done. And then they sort of undo it in the next scene where they decided that they're going to sell their mom up the river for their own personal gain. Yeah. But before we get to that, can I just talk about how this is not how radio stations work? <laughs> This whole, my brother answers phones at the radio station. He can get us tickets. This isn't how radio stations work, but there's a brilliance to this, though. Yeah, it's, it's not exactly wrong. It's not exactly wrong, but it's not exactly accurate either. And I'll explain why in a second, but, but let me talk about why it's brilliant. It's a very quick setup, uh, setup with absolutely no explanation, and it works. It works for how these kids are going to get their concert tickets because in a very elementary way, because it's a decom, it's meant for kids, right? Well, if you want to win tickets to a concert, you got to call a radio station. Oh, my brother works there. He's got the hookup. Nobody questions it, and it immediately gets you from point A to point B very quickly. Right. And it raises the stakes because it's not like they just had these tickets right. that they went out and purchased them. Adam's got his buddy, you know, really pulling out all the stops to try and acquire these tickets. So it it definitely gives us that sense of urgency, not only that they want to go to this concert, but they've gone through great lengths to earn it. Correct. Now, in regards to my brother answers phones at the radio station, take it from two people that worked in radio and ran an internship program for the radio station, you simply picking up the phone is not enough where you're just going to get tickets to whatever you want. Right. I, I mean, I think you and I are overly sensitive to this because the way that we would either get DM'd or just like stopped by people that we knew that thought we had a stack of tickets in our back pocket. Yeah. 
I was kind of rolling my eyes a little bit on this one. Well, that's why I stopped. Like, I got to a point where I wouldn't wear my BLI jacket. Like, I would wear it, you know, like to the grocery store or to Target. You know, you just you, it was a nice jacket they got us one year as Christmas gifts for the whole staff. So it was like, oh, this is perfect. And I short-lived. Just, yeah, short-lived because I learned very quickly, do not, especially because I was on air, do not wear that jacket in public. Right. Um, But... You know, basically, when you got tickets in the radio station, it was usually because it was like the day of the concert and somebody's tickets went unclaimed and the building was closing and it would just be like, hey, anybody want to go do this tonight? That is how I think you and I saw probably like 75% of the concerts that we either, I mean, don't get me wrong, we still bought ticket purchase tickets even when we were working in radio to plenty of shows because sometimes we just weren't doing the giveaway the band didn't fit what we were playing on the air and um, you didn't want to risk that tickets wouldn't get picked up or that there wouldn't be 10 people that had a name on a list ahead of you trying to get them or some you just knew better than to ask if yeah. it was a huge act you had to you know just go out and seek them out yourself which is what these kids are were trying to do what they were trying to do at least but i did get a good laugh out of like the simplicity of it but yet it worked so well at the exact same time right now getting back into where we unravel everything um adam gets in trouble because he didn't do his homework assignment like he promised his mom that he had and he starts reading out of what is basically the Inquirer. I wish they had gotten the rights to use The Inquirer. I think that would have been hilarious. Right. The weekly world news, all of these supermarket tabloids. But all of the color and the font was the same. So you knew exactly what it was supposed to be. Yeah. He's in his history class having to read his one page essay, by the way, one page essay about somebody that he admires or looks up to, whatever it should be. And he just basically starts reading a Van Helsing article. Gets in trouble. Mom says, you're not going to the concert. The bickering siblings thing where he gets in trouble. Chelsea keeps picking on him for it. Gets herself grounded on top of it. So now, uh-oh, we're stuck together for the weekend. Grounded. 90s trope. Hands down, 90s trope. I do want to dial it back for just a second, though, because I actually don't feel like he was reading the article because he clearly knows a lot about vampires this is what he's into this is his wheelhouse did he write the paper no should he get in trouble for that Mm, i think the jury's still out on that one but if i were the teacher in that situation the fact that the kid knows so much that he was able to just spew all this information out I wouldn't have been so hard on him about not having the physical paper because I really don't think he was reading. He had the article open, but he wasn't looking at it. So I kind of thought Adam deserved more of a pass on that. I think it was just because, you know, the teacher didn't agree with the subject matter because obviously it is something that's fantastical or so we think in this world. It's as we learn, it's not. Right. Um, but I, I kind of feel like he didn't get a fair shake and this was just a plot point to set up the bickering to land them in punishment together perhaps but it works it works to get them to punishment together it does i'll i'll give it that and i kind of like the fact that lynette punishes chelsea as well 
because it's bad enough that Adam's in enough trouble and he tries to talk himself out of it. He tries to negotiate his punishment. I kind of like that Lynette puts her in jail too for just not having the ability to keep her mouth shut. And kicking her brother when he's down. Because that's the thing. She's 16. Yeah. It's not like she's 13 and her younger brother is 10. They should both know better by now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about the personal ads. They come up with this scheme. Really, it's Adam, but Chelsea doesn't really... She doesn't fight him on it, right? Right. That they've got to get mom on a date so that it's a distraction long enough so that she can go on her date with Peter and that he can go to this Headless Horseman concert. Let's talk about this. The personal ads. Um, I'll go with it. It's juvenile, but again, it doesn't need any explanation. And I think that perhaps this is where the movie, I hate to say it, it is going to be dated to a certain demographic that doesn't understand what the personal ads are. They know what Tinder is. But before there was Tinder and eHarmony, there were the personal ads in the newspaper. And at the time when the movie came out, and I think that if you're an adult watching it through the eyes of this was in the year 2000, you don't question that they would go into the personal ads to get somebody's email address to try and set this up. No, and they do cover it with what... I actually think is a very clever line that's so interesting to look at now. Um, Chelsea goes, you're going to set mom up with somebody that you're, you're picking out of a newspaper. And Adam's like, no, the, the newspaper has vetted these people. It's not <laughs> nearly as bad as going into a chat room, which to look at now, I mean, AOL chat rooms when AOL first came out were the worst. It was a dangerous was place a to be breeding ground for creepers. Um, and now, of course, on all of these dating dating apps, uh, people are very concerned, obviously, about getting catfish or or much worse, God forbid. Um, you know, so these dating apps are actually, you know, going through great lanes to make sure they can't obviously vet everyone, but like you can report people if if you have a bad experience. So it's just so funny to look at this now that that's what's being vetted, and in print media you can pretty much submit anything nowadays i mean we know as the audience that nobody got vetted in the personal ads no but he's saying it because he's a kid and he just thinks the be- like it's a it's a um it's a childish innocence that he just assumes that people have been vetted we know as the audience as adults at least that these people have not been vetted but you're right i mean they they talk about the chat rooms and the chat rooms were a cesspool and They go to greater lengths now, you're right, which is why I think it is not so taboo anymore that these dating apps exist, and I think it's not so taboo anymore that people meet in, you know, uh, Facebook groups and, and, uh, you know, Disney pass holders or the 8 o'clock shot, you know what I'm saying, if you're over 21. And these people all get together, and they have these big gatherings, or they just go hang out one-on-one. Because people are getting vetted a little bit more now... You stumbled in the 90s so we could run in the 2020s. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it. I don't think that kids would understand how taboo that was when this movie came out. I agree. What really should have tipped us off, though, that even the personal ad was taboo was just by virtue of the email address being Wolfsbane. Yeah. 
become that. I think that's also one of the hacky sort of things that I expected from all of these uh, vampire posters all over the wall is that you're you're going to be, you know, just trying to fit in that vernacular wherever you can. Um, but as far as the scene goes, um, I think this is actually one of the successes of this film, even though they're doing a terrible thing by by selling their mother out in this situation you do have to set up this date. So instead of just trying to get her out of the house and run into some random person or just find an excuse to get her out of the house, period, and then have her randomly encounter the vampire, I like that the whole thing was orchestrated. And it also gives the kids a bigger investment to fix their mistake more than just we have to save our mother. This is their fault now. The one thing I wish they would have leaned into a little bit more here is that as awful as this is, because it is, it is awful, right? What they are doing. They are selling their mother out so that they get their night out. But they do say, you know, it's been a while since mom had a date. She hasn't been out, you know, since she and dad split up. I wish that they would have layered that in a little bit more where it's like, you know what? We want to get out for the night, but dad's getting remarried. Look at how upset mom is. We should really set her up with somebody. Let's kill two birds with one stone. Because I think it would have... I don't think you necessarily needed to soften what they did, because ultimately this is a comedy after all. But I wish that you would have had just that extra layer, because they're guilty enough that they're going to risk losing their mother to a vampire for their own selfish gain. But it would have been a little bit more salt in the wound if somewhere in there they were trying to do the right thing. Because they go so far as to call it out, I wish they would have leaned into it just a little bit more. Right. Like if their heart is in the right place and they get burned, it makes us sympathize with them a little bit more. As opposed to what we have, thinking that these brat kids are being selfish. Because it does make them momentarily dislikable. Yeah, just for a moment. What I do like that they did, too, though, um, they they do, as you said, point out she hasn't been on a date in a while, but they were also really smart planting that wedding invitation because it does give us some passage of time and clue us into how long, you know, if the dad is, has gone on to get remarried at this point, you have to think this is at least a year or two. This is not a fresh divorce that they're coming off of. Correct. The broken family breakfast angle. It is so savage. Yes. It is so mean. <laughs> it is so mean that they are. that's how they're going to lure their mother out of the house. And I think that this also kind of plays into what you were saying before, how the kids for like just a moment in time are dislikable. Because in reality, they're not dislikable. They're not dislikable kids. Mm. Okay. I don't think they are. I think in this moment they are. Because on top of the fact that they are selling their mother out for their night out. They're also coming up with this really sad, broken family sob story with these, I remember when we were happy. It was just like, ooh. Like, why did you have to say that exact word? You could have just said, I miss when we used to make pancakes as a family. Do we have pancake mix? Great. We don't have chocolate chips. Oh, we got to go get chocolate chips so we can do this big Saturday breakfast. But good Lord, you're twisting that knife. Yeah, but you know what? It makes sense to kids, though. 
the thing is, this makes sense to the kids, the, the target audience who are watching this. Remember something. The kids are not going to sit there and watch this movie from the eyes of Lynette. We're going to do that because we're kind of close to Lynette's hey. age. <laughs> um, but we look at it differently than they do. They're going to look at this through the eyes of Adam. Not even Chelsea. They're going to look at this film through the eyes of Adam. You know what they really should have done to sell this more, though? Because to me, I'm thinking that at 13, Adam should know better. They should have fed this to Taylor and gotten him to be a part of their horrible scheme and, and you know, give the little kid puppy dog eyes for the chocolate chip pancakes. Taylor's too nice to do that, though. He doesn't have to know why. He could just want pancakes. I guess... Um, but it lures her out of the house, gets her to the supermarket. To me, this is actually one of the best scenes in the film, because not only do you have them trying to link up with Dimitri, who is the actual vampire who they are trying to set Lynette up with on this date, but you also have the entrance of Van Helsing. And who is dressed like Indiana Jones in a cheap trench coat. Um, But they're sort of misdirecting us to believe that Van Helsing is the vampire. And he's sort of being depicted as this creepy shadowy figure who's just on his own in the grocery store being sort of stalkerish. I wish they would have dragged that out a little bit longer. That's the only problem. We find out by the end of this scene that he is hunting a vampire and that Dimitri is the vampire. Again, I know that we needed to get Taylor involved. Taylor needed to see the transformation. But I wish they would have, like, dragged that out a little bit longer where we were thrown off course and the whole time we're thinking, oh, this poor guy, this poor trauma specialist at the ER, which is a great backstory, by the way, as to why he's only out at night and never during the daytime. Mm -hmm. You're thinking, oh, this poor man that actually likes Lynette now has to compete with this vampire that could at any point kill all of them. Right. But I thought this was a really smart introduction for him nonetheless, because we know his name, but this is the first time we're actually seeing him. So I like that he didn't get to town first. We meet him elsewhere. We don't know that he's on the trail until right now. And then because Dimitri literally crashes into Lynette with the cart, you actually get this nice meet cute that feels right out of a rom-com. Yes. Albeit a cheesy rom-com. They're all cheesy. <laughs> Hallmark season is almost upon us. So so get ready for it. Um, but I like that they had their own isolated meeting, even though the kids are, are going up to every single man in the store. Which is also very funny. And Lynette finds him on her own. That's why I wish they would have dragged it out a little bit longer because I'm thinking this is what's happening. Right. But in any case, Dimitri, yeah, he's mysterious. He's got that British accent, but he'll tell you it's Romanian. Um, He's charming. He tells her he's a doctor. She's smitten. He's smitten. And the banter is actually pretty good. Like, Yes, like how they're compla- they're comparing it to a uh, a car accident. It's so with the cards. good. It's, it's clever. It's so good. It's good and writing. I, it's good writing and it's good acting. Um, and we'll talk about the cast in a little while. Um, because they had a history together as well. Um, but 
I love that this gets set up. And then the night of the date, just because you have to send it home a little bit more that Adam's obsessed with vampires. I don't expect you to know this because I know you didn't have the original PlayStation. You had a PS2, right? You didn't have the original PlayStation, the one that came out in 95? I thought... Mm. I I couldn't tell you. It was my brother's. Like, I played it, but I, I could not even tell you. It brought me back to a time and place where 13 and 14-year-old Sean was sitting on the floor in his house on Long Island playing on the 35-inch TV The Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver because that's what Adam is playing on his computer. And it was like... It, I'm not going to say it was more than deja vu, but not quite amnesia. It was like this like moment where I just froze and I went, oh, my God, it's Soul Reaver. And the <laughs> premise of Soul Reaver was that Kane is a former vampire that is now collecting his vampire brethren. It was a great game. The sequels were terrible. But that original game, my brother and I wore the disc out. We played it so much. I would have never picked up on that in a million years, but there are several other things like that that happen in the film. Like they walk under a marquee and it's for the Lost Boys, which is another vampire movie. Uh, that's that's not a big surprise. Question for you, though. Yeah. Completely unrelated to the film. Okay. Well, sort of. Adam playing the game on the computer, yeah. was that... After PS2 or at the same time? Is this like when you can, is this similar to that you can play Roller Coaster Tycoon on a phone now and it was, you know, this huge computer game back in the day? So, like, I mean, did they dumb it down for a computer is, is what I'm asking. They had it on PC and they had it on PlayStation. Okay. This was before the PS2, but they had it on multiple platforms. They didn't have it on, they didn't have it on Nintendo 64 because my brother and I would have had it for the N64. Oh, no. Well, let's see. No, by then we would have been... No, Xbox. We got an Xbox in 2001. It was Nintendo 64. Sorry, I'm just... Oh, I'm rambling. No, it was it was, um, it was. was a cross-platform uh, PC or PlayStation. That game was I was game just was curious. I was, I was curious if they were trying to sort of shoehorn it into being in Adam's room versus him sitting in the living room or whatever. No, no, no. Um, and in the next scene, you have Lynette trying to back herself out of this date. Now, Dimitri showed up. He's at the front door. Um, they do the great vampire thing where he doesn't just walk in and, until he's invited in. Okay. I have issue with this, though. And Why? This is where it's for somebody that has vampire posters plastered everywhere. And I'm not, I'm not talking about Adam in this situation. I'm talking about the director's choice to have this Homage to vampire films. You are assuming that we know the vampire needs to be invited in. And nowhere in this film have they mentioned it yet. Meanwhile, Taylor has been badgering Adam with all of these questions about how to identify a vampire and how to kill. Is kill the right word? Yeah, you kill a vampire. How to kill a vampire. And this never once came up. That would have been smart to plant in with all of Taylor's questions because really, if you're not into vampires the way that Adam is, he is the expert, as they call him. The audience is in 
Taylor and Chelsea's POV for the most part. But the problem is, if Taylor knows not to invite him into the house, he wouldn't have invited him into the house. Because he's seen that he's a bad at this point. All right, I will give you that one. But doing this slow motion as he as Dimitri crosses the threshold into the house is not enough to call attention to it if you don't know that they need to be invited in. And I think that that's asking a little bit too much of your audience here. For, not for a horror fan audience, but for the average decom family that's sitting down to watch this, I don't think that's very fair. I'll give you that one. Um, but the scene where Chelsea is talking to Lynette and she's hyping her up for the date, this is more than their scheme. This is, this is more than Chelsea trying to get her out the door so that she can go on her date. This is where Chelsea is trying to tell her mom, you should date. There is somebody out there for you. You deserve this. You this, you that. You're good enough. You know what I mean? All the things that you're going to say. Like, again, this is where I wish they would have leaned into them actually trying to do the right thing a little bit more. I agree with that, but I disagree. This is what the kids are not going to say. She's built it up so much that she has to have this speech with them because she's so afraid of having to break the news that their father's getting remarried. This is where the kids should be pitching a fit that the dad's getting remarried and now, you know, you're going to go on this date and, you know, our, our family is getting split further and further apart. Like, this is where that teen angst would normally come in. But they didn't do that, and I appreciate that so much. Well, because they set the thing up so that they could go out. They're not then going to complain about it. You are right, but because they set it up for their night, they could have, because they're clearly putting their feelings above their own mother, they could have been squashing, you know, who cares if we send mom out at the risk that she falls in love and oh, now she gets remarried too. Yeah, I get you. You know, they, they could have had that conflict of interest over the long term, not for the short term of their Saturday night. Fair enough. I also want to point out that when Lynette leaves with Dimitri, or as Dimitri is trying to get them out of the house and she's kind of stalling, like, Lynette, your son is wearing his headless horseman t-shirt. Where do you think he's going tonight? Do you think he's going to stay in the house? I mean... This kid has the gall to literally wear his concert t-shirt as he is rushing his mother out of the house to go on the date with the total stranger. And they bothered to have him change his t-shirt into another one of a different color, but it's still the same Headless Horseman t-shirt. So if you're going to have him change, why didn't you have him, you know, or have him in pajamas like Chelsea? She's got her robe over her date clothes. Right. Exactly. She's got her bathrobe on. Like, if he would have just had, like, a flannel button-up and he would have just, like, yanked it off as soon as she left, I would have been like, yep, makes total sense. He's got, a, like, a flannel shirt on, but it's unbuttoned over the Headless Horseman t-shirt. Don't flaunt it. That was a Don't big miss. flaunt it, kid. Big miss. I'll tell you what's not a miss, because we talked about it before. You talked about it before. Uh, in this world, Van Helsing is real. I love that he's real, and I love that he is listed for phone calls. Yes. And it kind of, like, lends more to the whole notion of, like, we know that it's real. Clearly, there are people that know that it's real, but there's also that sect of people that just look at it as mumbo-jumbo, like his teacher. 
And that's where I really thought this film was going to be a ripoff of Fright Night, where you have a television character that hunts vampires roped into this real life vampire situation and he's clearly out of his depth. They didn't go anywhere near that. In fact, that's where, to me, the comedy of this film comes from, because you do have that serious anchor in Van Helsing. Correct. Now, for those that may find themselves inclined to go watch Fright Night, we're not talking about the Fright Night remake with Colin Farrell. We are and McLovin. No. We're talking about the original Fright Night with Roddy McDowell and Chris Sarandon and... Uh, Amber Bierce, that is what you've got to watch. Or uh, Amanda Bierce, I'm sorry. Um, that, that Not with is your so kids, good. though. There's nudity, and for some kids, Sean, it's a little scary. Hey, as an eight-year-old, I was horrified, but in the most intriguing way. It's like how most kids who watch a horror film, you're scared, but they're like, you can't stop watching it. It has been it's one like of, Return to Oz for me. <laughs> Not a horror film. I think mine was a little bit more graphic than <laughs> but Return I loved to Oz. It and it was scary. Uh, yeah, don't watch it with your kids, but go ahead and watch it. But if you're going to watch it, watch the original. Yeah, because in that film, Roddy McDowell plays Peter Vincent, the vampire killer, but he's hosting like a B list local cable late night monster movie show. Um, he's not a real vampire killer, but Charlie who is a fan of vampires and a fan of the show, thinks it's real. So that's like, there's comedy in that. And then, of course, they get roped into having to kill the real vampire that has moved next door to Charlie. That's the premise of Fright Night. But in this case, it's still funny, but it's a different kind of funny. Right. Um, and that does not parallel Fright Night at all. I think the um, over-enthusiastic love for monster films the obsession with monster films, that parallels Fright Night. But what this does better than Fright Night, actually, and I'll give it credit for this, because this is something that never really sat well with me with Fright Night. Charlie loves these movies, yet he goes to Evil Ed for all the help. In this case, it's uh, Adam that's obsessed, and his little brother that doesn't know anything about the films is coming to him but Adam's also self-sufficient because as the movie fleshes itself out and as we start going after Dimitri and we try to save Lynette, Adam has everything planned. And he tells Chelsea, we're going to do this next, then we're going to do this next, then we're going to do this next. So that is actually one thing that this film did better than Fright Night. I actually love this reveal where Taylor does get Adam on board to believe him. I think this was, again, more really clever writing because... You know, Lynette is on this this date. She's uncomfortable. Right. She's trying to sort of throw Dimitri off by saying, you know, why do you want me? You seem so worldly and all, all this stuff. And then, boom, her kids come crashing into the date. And they just confront the issue. Adam tells Dimitri straight up, my brother thinks that you're a vampire. Let's prove him wrong so that he can relax. Because at this point... Uh, Taylor has left the house, and I actually really like that scene, too, where, where Adam and Chelsea do actually put their own uh, selfish ways aside, and they realize, you know, we, we can't just have Taylor out on his bike, you know, running rampant. Right. Uh, so anyway, they crash the date, they confront the issue, and 
it's just so clever because Dimitri is just trying to play along as the good date and go, oh, the spoon test. I'll do the spoon test. And he's trying to hype it up and make it seem all scary. Like, what if I fail? Um, and, and put on this show for Taylor. And it makes him come out like a rock star in front of Lynette because he played along and humored the kid. Um, and then just as you feel like, okay, we can take a breath. Dimitri's not so bad. Adam is now sucked in because of this reveal. It, it's actually, I'll say it, it's a brilliant scene. It is. And you know what? It's one of my favorite Dimitri scenes in the movie because he is so good and yes. he is so believable. And I'm going to go out on a limb as somebody that watches a lot of horror films, as somebody that loves vampire films, not named Twilight, because if vampires go out in the day, they don't sparkle, they burn and die. <laughs> I think that he is one of the most underappreciated vampires in cinema history. He's that good. I would agree with that. It's crazy that it's buried in this decom, but he is that good. And he is that believable because the what makes a truly great vampire, much like Chris Sarandon in Fright Night, is they are so charming that even though you know they're inherently evil, you start believing their line of nonsense. Exactly. And they, they did just enough to pace this out because before the kids get there, why don't you have a steak? It's good for your blood. And no, I don't drink wine. I was this movie does it so brilliantly just where you think it's going to be really hockey and and lean into all of those things that we've seen in other vampire films they dip their toe in the water and then they yank it back yank out it right back out yeah no right it's, back it's out. really well done and I love that when she goes you're so good with kids and he goes yeah kids are sweet but he's not talking about their personalities didn't even catch that I which is loved it so funny because people were up in arms um there was a dog a family dog in this film and when dimitri goes to pick her up for the date he's like licking his chops over at the dog and and people kicked up a fuss about it so that shot is no longer in interesting but but we'll talk but, about eating kids but we we'll kids got it um well <laughs> i can't say i disagree save the dog eat the kids yeah, I could get down with that. Let's talk about another trope that is not just a trope of... I'm not even going to say it's a trope of the 90s. I think it's a trope of every film with a babysitter, but it's certainly a trope of a Halloween film with a babysitter. This babysitter does not second guess, not for an instant, <laughs> that a vampire hunter just walked into the house. She doesn't even care that anyone walked into the house. Yeah, she's just like, okay, you got to leave. He's got to go to bed. I mean, it's very tropey. She's on the phone talking to whoever, doesn't really want to be there. But at least she talks to Taylor at yeah. some point, which is kind of like you needed to make up your mind. Either she's going to be lost in her own world and have no idea what's going on, in which case she shouldn't have paid attention to Van Helsing at all. And all of a sudden she snaps to and Taylor's gone. I think I would have preferred that than this pretending to care. Right. Unlike like in Halloween, Annie is not paying attention. All she wants to do is leave to go get frisky with Paul. Let that be the trope of the babysitter not being paying attention exactly. and then havoc ensues. Exactly. But that's it, man. Like that's, that's basically, that's Halloween. That's your teenager was not babysitting properly. They were off having a little 
too much fun with their boyfriends, and then I got hacked up over it. That was basically Halloween. So I love, whether intentional or not, that they still dipped their toe into this trope of of just the atypical, while they didn't show anything inappropriate, the atypical babysitter in a Halloween film. Yeah, I I actually think they could have leaned in a little bit harder here. They could have, but it's a decom. Here is where I can't believe that I'm saying this again. I think I know where you're going now. This is the parallel to Fright Night. It is the parallel to Fright Night. We might not be on the same page. I thought that the whole vampire in a dance hall thing could have only existed in Fright Night in its wonderful 80s cheesiness. We are back in a dance hall again. No, that that is where I thought you were going because I'm still really not sure how to feel about this one. I mean, I I love when they did it in Hocus Pocus. I think that that is still, I know I'm not trashing your Fright Night, but like that is the best one to me where the witches and the monster or the, excuse me, the witches and the zombie are hiding in plain sight and none of the parents believe them. And they think it's all a joke for Halloween. To me, that is perfection. It doesn't get any better than that. And I don't know if I give them credit here for trying because I thought the rockabilly club came sort of out of left field, but looking at those two films as the comparisons, now I do kind of feel like you ripped it off quite a bit. I'm just surprised that again, in a 2000 movie, not even a 1990s one, that Rockabilly was the choice. And then there was part of me that was like, okay, you're ripping off Fright Night and Hocus Pocus and Back to the Future? No, I will tell you why that makes sense. First off, there is a there is a line, I don't know if you recall it or not, when they're in the grocery store and they're like trying to like sell Lynette to Dimitri and they say she Hyper used up. to they're sing in a rock a band. Man woman. Yeah. And they do plant that. I, I didn't catch it the first time, but I did the second. So I was glad that they planted that early and this wasn't just like give Lynette her moment to make us as the audience fall in love with her the way that Dimitri should be at this point. But think about and again, this I think it does date the film. Think about the kind of quote-unquote rock music that was kind of big at the time. I mean, yes, you had Sugar Ray, you had Smash Mouth, but the Cherry Pop and Daddies, the Brian Setzer Orchestra, oh. Rockabilly was coming back. It. I don't know that it was coming back, but I would say that they were definitely paying homage to it. They were on the charts. Zoot Suit Riot. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, what was that? Flagpole Sitter? Flagpole Sitter. Um, yeah, I mean, they were they were all over the place. Uh, Rock This Town, when Brian yeah. Setzer did Rock This Town. Um, and, and, and I mean, he had been big in the 80s. And actually, that kind of makes sense because he was doing the Stray Cat thing. So if you think about it, oh my God, the timing, it's canon. Okay, I'll tell you why. Okay. Because... Lynette had said that she hadn't sang in a band in 15 years. She gave up singing in a band when Chelsea was a year old. Right? Well, you're taking it back to 1985, so you can say Back to the Future, 
but not just Back to the Future, but also that is when the Stray Cats were the freaking Stray Cats. Whoa. So it would make sense that Rockabilly was big in the 80s because of bands like the Stray Cats and Back to the Future. And And it it saw this resurgence in the late 90s and early 2000s. My God. It's all canon, and it all makes sense, and I j- this movie just shot up the charts for me. <laughs> oh my God, what brilliance. Well, we could also make the argument that I don't buy that Lynette was going to, you know, get up there and perform gangster rap either. No, I don't think she was going to go up there and do Gangsta's Paradise, but I do buy that she would get up there and sing, and do you need the scene where she sings? My answer is yes. I think you absolutely need it. I go back and forth with this because I'm I'm still not 100% sure if it's Caroline Ray singing. If it was any other actress, like if they had, for argument's sake, I mean, Shania Twain was huge with Man, I Feel Like a Woman coming out in, in 99. She was on top of her game at this point. If you had gotten somebody like that to do a crossover where a huge singer wanted to be in a movie or whatever... I would buy it. Well, that don't impress me much. So I'm happy <laughs> if Caroline Ray is the one that's singing it. Wow. Wow. Okay. I don't even know how to recover from that pun. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. My point was that I don't think Caroline Ray had some sort of big music career where they'd want to showcase that. I mean, if anything... And we're going to talk about the cast, obviously, but she was huge during this time. I mean, she had come off of Sabrina. There was Caroline's in the City, the comedy club, which if you grew up in New York or Jersey, I think was everybody's after prom uh, excursion. Well, I went to Dangerfields, but that was on the list. Of course you did. I I went to Caroline's. Um, but she, I'm trying to think of like a comparison now of of a female comedian who, who was just huge, like a Kate McKinnon or a Carol Burnett back in her day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, she was tremendous. She was on Sabrina. She had her own talk show at one point. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, Caroline Ray, she was huge. And people loved her. She, yes. I, that's the other thing. And I, I was going to save this for when we started talking about the cast, but since we're on the topic of, I just want to put this out there now, that Caroline Ray, like, she nailed the whole 90s mom thing. I In Sabrina, she was an aunt, I think. Yes. Right? But she was still completely maternal. People now don't understand, kids now, I should say, don't understand how much people loved Caroline Ray in the 90s. She was, um, I mean, if I had to think of somebody nowadays, and and even that, I I don't want to say it's past its, I don't want to say it's past its prime, but you're not seeing her quite as much, Melissa McCarthy. I think in in more recent history, people have fallen in love with Melissa McCarthy, Mm -hmm. whether it be from uh, 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 Gilmore Girls or Mike and Molly, and then she did so many big films, um, and people just gravitated to her. They loved her, right? I'm trying to think if there's anybody else right now that's it's carrying that power. They they don't come around that often, right? And I had said Kate McKinnon, or you know, even even somebody like Kristen Wiig, but both of them, SNL. St- 
standouts. They've both had very successful film careers, but neither of them have a comedy club. Right. That's the thing. Like, and I don't think people realize or appreciate that now that before the age of social media to have that kind of a, a separate business from what you were known for and, and to have, you know, the stand up career plus the successful sitcom and then a comedy club like that was a big deal, especially for a female. But anyway, I never answered the original question. Yeah. Do we need the song? I like the song. I, I don't know if it was written. There is nothing on this film. So if you know anything about it, if you grew up on this, like, please write in and let us know. Because there is absolutely nothing as far as behind the scenes info goes. Uh, but I don't know if it was written just for this film. I don't believe it's a cover. But I'm not into rockabilly music. But I can't imagine that a decom would have gone out and purchased the rights to a song just so Caroline Ray could sing it. I think we need the scene because... I think that we as the audience need to see Lynette as she was, and so does her children. Because, first off, in Adam's case, he's never seen her sing. He's only ever heard about it. In Chelsea's case, she doesn't remember at a year old seeing her mother sing. But what we do know is that, obviously, she's kind of having a harder time being a single parent and having her husband get remarried. You need this is such a character moment for Lynette, and then it's it's such a it's a refreshing look in the mirror for Lynette as well because from this point on for the rest of the film she's just grabbing Dimitri like let's go do this let's go do that let's go have fun let's keep having fun let's keep having fun it was such a moment that you needed for this character you needed this scene to happen. This actually is sort of a tonal shift that makes it Lynette's movie. And when you think about yes. it, it really has been the entire time. Because yes. we're sitting here saying the kids are brats. They're unlikable. They're the driving force of the plot who set her up. But really, she is the arc. Yeah, you you brilliantly spoiled my final review. Sorry. No, don't be sorry, because you're absolutely right. This is not... Adam's movie. It's not Chelsea's movie. It's not Dimitri's movie. It's not Van Helsing's movie. It's not Taylor's movie. This is Lynette's movie. The whole thing is about her. Yes, the kids play a massive role. You could even say that the kids play a bigger role, but it's not their story. It's hers. And I think once you realize that and you start watching the film through the eyes of the adult, and you start watching this as Lynette's film, it's got more layers. It's got more heart. Yep. It's got more depth. It's yep. got more heartbreak. It's got more of everything that brings this to a level of, and I'm just going to say, it brings it to a level of brilliance that I didn't think we were going to get out of a film called Mom's Got a Date <laughs> with a Vampire that aired on the Disney Channel on October 13th, 2000. So... Case in point, regardless of whether they ripped it off or not, you do need this rockabilly club scene where she sings. Correct. Then Dimitri gets tossed out because Adam is just going around causing problems in the club, getting the finger pointed at Dimitri, getting the attention on Dimitri. He gets tossed out and he starts walking up the side of the building because he's going to go back in to get Lynette. This is the first time that Chelsea actually sees that something's wrong. Because up until this point, Chelsea's just going off of what she's been told by her brothers. 
and kind of blindfully going along with it. I, I'm glad that she actually saw something on her own. I am too, but I kind of bump on just going along with her brothers because they have done nothing to prove that they have that type of relationship. I love that the vampire is revealed separately to each one of the kids in not only different times, but in different ways. Like Taylor, it was changing into the bat. Adam, it was the no reflection. Chelsea, I I feel like if Chelsea had seen the no reflection, it's not going to mean anything to her. She's just going to think it's weird. But to see this guy walking up a wall, she's going to go, oh, this isn't normal. Uh-huh. But I'll, I'll buy all of that. But what I don't buy is that she's been bickering with Adam this entire time, but she's still going along with him. And I don't know that I have a reason to believe that she wouldn't be acting in a way other than selfishly that's going to get her back to her date faster. Um, I think ultimately, you, you're right, you're right, but I think ultimately we're not supposed to think about it that deeply because all we know and all we need to know is that mom's in trouble, we gotta help her. You're talking about how Lynette has just layered the film and now we're not supposed to think about this that deeply? I'm talking about from, like, the casual audience. You know, I, I think, especially for kids, um... You hear your parents in trouble, you just go to help them. It's just what most children do. It's what most siblings do. You know, you hear that somebody's in trouble, you just go take care of it. Well, I guess that's why for for this type of character who has been nothing but tropey up to this point, I'm surprised to see her acting the way. You know what it is? You needed something else where she connects the dots to I. I wanted mom to go on this date. I wanted her to find happiness. Oh no, what have I done? We never get that. Yes, we we don't ever get that. Um, what we do get is the scene at the Harvest Festival because now Lynette's there with Dimitri. Because he wants to go somewhere quiet and she's like, nah, let's party. Yeah. Um, and what you do get is the reveal from Boomer that... Uh, Adam. By the way, that is the most '90s bully name. It's almost as bad as Ice and Ernie in in Hocus Pocus, but '90s. This movie was 2000. It's in this point that Chelsea learns for the first time that the entire reason why Adam had this ticket was because he bargained a deal where Boomer was going to get a date with her. Um, Right, because the friend found out that he was grounded and yeah. gave the ticket, ticket away. away. Right. Which all goes back to what we were talking about before. You raise the stakes by making this a radio station. Uh, I almost said win, but the fact that you got them from the radio station, you don't want the tickets to go to waste because you've gone to great lengths to get them. Calling in a favor from your brother who works there. Exactly. And then I thought the whole scene where they go to breakfast with Boomer and Adam's upset that the ticket was given away was a total waste. No, they brought it back around. They. I'm going to say this right now. With the exception of only one instance, everything that gets planted or said in this movie is brought back around later. Yes. The only thing that doesn't get brought back around, at one point when Van Helsing goes to the house the first time, and he's talking to Taylor when the babysitter is like not questioning why this mysterious vampire hunter showed up. Dressed like that. Dressed like that. Um, Adam gives him a chocolate cookie, and he goes, I'll eat it later, and he just puts it in his pocket. 
The cookie never comes back. Right. That's the only thing where they don't plant something early and bring it back around. This film does an incredible job of not, with the exception of that, not wasting a single line or a single second of screen time. Clearly something got cut because you would not have just put a cookie in your pocket for no reason. Right. I don't care how quirky your character is supposed to be. There was a purpose for that cookie and we didn't get to see what it is. I sit here saying the C word and our our dog is perking up out of a nap. (laughs) Now we're going to have to give him something later. Um, Here's what I'm really surprised about. Um, Again, as much as we we love the Rockabilly Club scene, I'm surprised that that was not merged with this concert where Lynette was pulled up on stage. Because the other weird thing that I didn't mention in the the prior scene, everybody knows who she is. Oh, you're Lynette's son. Oh, uh, of course I remember Lynette's band. Yeah. I kind of feel like for this festival to be such a big community thing and it it seems like it's a regular occurrence but like the band changes out right i'm surprised that they didn't have that you know just be one event and one scene and have everything happen there and being that it was not that way we really missed a fun opportunity for some funhouse mirror no reflection uh antics in there yeah but they do that in fright night though that's in Fright Night. Oh, you're right. When That's when um, Amanda Bierce realizes that she's dancing with the vampire because she doesn't believe Charlie. But it's an 80s nightclub. There's mirrors everywhere. And she sees that she's basically dancing with herself. So that would have been... It would have pulled way too much. Then, then it is a complete ripoff of Fright Night. I forgot about that. Forgive me. I'm not as well-versed in that movie as you are. And no, this does not mean that I have to watch it again so that I remember. We got... Two months till Halloween, so I will be watching it plenty. Um, but but this is a really tough scene, though, um, that I wish they would have, like, let the drama play out a little bit longer because it's such a hurtful thing that Adam would basically just trade his sister away for this concert ticket against her will because... She's got a boyfriend. She's got a guy that she's steadily dating, and he's gone and promised a date with another guy. Um, so I, I know they don't want to delve into that too much. It's a Disney film, but like you're basically gonna, f- you're, I mean, she's got to agree with it, of course. But you're gonna kind of like force your older sister to cheat on her boyfriend so you can go to a concert. I know it's not something they're gonna tackle in a decom. They, they're setting the mom up with a personal ad. But I absolutely buy this from Adam. But that's what I like about this whole thing is that Chelsea calls that out. She calls out that exact... That, no, I'm sorry. He calls it out to her. He says to Chelsea... Well, How this are is you what, mad at me for this when this is exactly what we're doing to mom? Right. And then she flips it on him and goes, which was also your idea, which is kind of lame because Chelsea, you went along with it too. You didn't see the problem with it until just now. But... um. I love that he says, but I'm changed. And she goes, from what? It was this afternoon. Like, it's a really, like, it's a harsh scene, but they lighten it with some very funny dialogue where it is kind of, like, unbelievable that, like, he's, like, seen the light now and it happened so quickly. So I think they did a really good job of taking what is a very hurtful moment, but softening it, softening it just enough. 
I actually like that the film is being self-aware enough to call it out that this entire thing is taking place in about a 24-hour cycle. So I I think that's also them sort of being self-referential. Right. But they make up quickly and they head over to Dimitri's home because he had mentioned earlier that he had bought a house. He was fixing it up. And something else that they did that I was really surprised that they actually went for here. Um, As they're walking up to the house, Chelsea and Adam are talking about the situation. And they've just made amends. And they're fixing their relationship. And Chelsea says to Adam, hey, just so you know, we're a family. No matter what happens. Even if it means it's just the three of us. And I went, oh my God, Chelsea is Chelsea's walking into this situation knowing we have to save mom, but knowing there's a chance that they're going to fail and Lynette's going to die and become a vampire. That's such a heavy moment for a decom. That line actually sort of makes up for Chelsea not having that aha moment earlier on of I put mom in this situation, now I have to get her out of it. Because... From Taylor's POV, he's got Van Helsing helping out. And he's got faith that this adult person is going to help them. Adam, who is the vampire expert, he didn't necessarily believe in his own expertise at first. But now he knows that he has to be the one to call all of the shots. Chelsea doesn't really have that same authority here so now this is her contribution of you know I don't have the expertise I don't have an adult helping out it's really just down to us now what happens if we don't actually make make it through this right so as much as I didn't appreciate that she was invested without having a motivation earlier on uh this this definitely makes up for it yeah what I also really love about this scene and I, I don't think is something that's that common to see in these vampire movies is that they utilize the coffin. I think that was done so brilliantly here, especially because it's two kids that are literally struggling to lift the thing. Yeah. Um, the scene, the first time I watched this, I thought it started dragging on a little bit, but upon the next viewing, I actually, I, I thought it was really well done because they're not going to be able to move this thing easy, easily. No, not at all. It's way too big for either one of them to lift, but they make it work by pushing it down the stairs. Right. Um, I think all in all, I like the conclusion of this film because from the point that they get to the house until the time the movie actually ends, that all kind of happens very fast. Um, I love the very clear history that there is between Van Helsing and Dimitri. Because, like, you as a vampire fan know that, obviously, Van Helsing has a history with, whether it be Dracula or whoever. Um, But I love that there is a clear-cut history that they keep talking about throughout this final scene. Yeah, and I don't even necessarily care that we didn't get to see it play out through flashback like it totally justifies how when van helsing was tracking him down at the car dealership he knew to light the uh the the ground on fire yeah 
So I I think I think that was all fine. Like it was actually a good payoff in that he knew what to do. I just wish we had seen the cookie get put to use. Um the pacing note is kind of wonky for me because once, you know, again, I like all the coffin stuff. I, I actually think it was really clever to have Adam, you know, sitting in the middle of the lake floating on this coffin. And then once Dimitri, uh, he's like, OK, well, if it's not your mom, it's going to be Chelsea. Right. Uh, so Adam has to make a choice. Um, I thought that was all very well done. But once they all get back in the house and Van Helsing shows up. That's where the pacing is sort of off um, because you're right. It feels rushed. But at the same time, they're doing all of these shots in slow motion, like the door slamming and then falling on top of Van Helsing. And then um, when he puts Adam and Chelsea in the trance, the the conversation before that where Adam's like, you're a vampire and you're going after an eight-year-old. I feel like that conversation dragged on because you're right. He is a vampire. He should just be, you know, he should be going after all of you right now and not giving you a pass just because you're kids. But right. that's also the difference between this being a straight horror and a decom. Right. Um. So, so that in, even though the ending was rushed, the conversation dragged. And then I felt like it dragged a little bit once they're put in the trance and then you have a series of slow motion shots that also feel very quick because there's just not a lot of them. And then boom, he's in the coffin and it's getting nailed. But what I like that they do here is they hearken back to the opening of the film where in the vampire movie that they're watching, the true love snaps out of the vampire's trance because true love takes over. I'm glad that that wasn't just a wasted line in the fake movie mm-hmm. and that they pull from that again with Lynette and the kids. Which is more than the kids deserve after putting her in this position. It is. But I'm glad that they didn't waste that. Right. All right. You want to talk about the cast here? Yes. All right. Let's talk about Caroline Ray. We, we mentioned her before. 90s royalty. Um... She was just the right mix of comedy with maternal love and a sense of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that she was perfect casting. It's not a surprise that she was cast. She obviously had the Disney contract because she had been doing Sabrina. Um, But I think at the time there was no one else that you were going to cast. And I think she knocked it out of the park. Uh, I would agree with that. I really like, you know, I, I like the song. I like the scene. We talked about it at nauseum. Um, but I really like that you get to see that fun side of not just Lynette, but I feel like you see the actress poking through a little bit, like when she's dancing on stage and in the club. I always remember that about Sabrina was her being the fun aunt. And I think that's just because that's, who she embodies as a person. She's like a bubbly, you know, just a fun, upbeat person. Right. Uh, And I think that that starts to come through. So I really like when she's able to let her hair down a little bit. Yes. Um, I'm going to jump to Dimitri here, played by Charles Shaughnessy. Um, I said it before. I think he's an underrated vampire. And I want to point out, too, that this film, for by 90 standards had a star-studded cast because if you don't know Charles Shaughnessy from this film, a lot of you 
who either saw the show in its initial run or are catching it now in reruns will know him as Mr. Sheffield from The Nanny. Yes. Um, and he and Caroline Ray had worked together in the past. He was on Sabrina. They did a date on Sabrina. And then I think he was on her daytime show as a guest at one point. I know that they had a history prior to this film. So um, the fact that they had that really great interaction, the meet cute being so good, Mm -hmm. it's because you had two actors that had already worked together and were obviously very comfortable together. I would even go so far as to say that they were friendly because... I to to have that kind of a chemistry in a decom, I think that was one of the biggest successes of the film. Uh, he was fantastic in it. Just that that over the top charisma, but I'm hiding something. Just nailed it. Yes. Absolutely nailed it. Matt O'Leary plays Adam. He's the middle child in the family. Um, despite the fact that he and his sister did a very horrendous thing um, in setting their mother up on a date so that they could have a night out. I still like him. Um, I like Adam. I think Matt O'Leary did a good job. And I think between the way that he played him and the way that it was written, they never crossed the line where they made him so dislikable that you couldn't recover from it. I would agree with that. I think he towed the line. Aside from the fact that to me, he just looks like a Culkin. He reminds he me like a, a lot of Kevin McAllister because it's, you know, when I grow up, I'm living alone. And then, you know, be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. That is sort of what happens to Adam here because he orchestrated this whole scenario. Um, but it never goes too far where you straight up don't like him. Right. And I think the same can be said for Chelsea, played by Laura Vandervoort. Um I mean, she was the, again, the 90s. It wasn't the 90s. But at the same time, I'm sure this was cast and produced in the 90s. So they played it like it was the 90s. Um, Just the typical 90s older sister that was going to bail her younger brothers out of trouble begrudgingly. I actually disagree. I think with Chelsea, they took what could have been a trope and turned her into a fully fleshed out character in, in that one line. Very true. Very true. Um, Well, if Matt O'Leary looks like a Culkin, then Miles Jeffrey, who plays Taylor, looks like a Lawrence. Yes! Oh, I thought the same thing. He looks like a Lawrence. What I like about... Whoa! Yeah, what I like about Miles Jeffrey, he was a likable little kid. They didn't turn him into that 90s all-knowing child quip machine, and he was never too much. I think that he was right where he had to be, And I thought he was a very fun character. I will admit to rolling my eyes when he says his full name. And I went, oh, come on, Taylor Hansen, because Hansen was just, you know, the biggest thing then. Um, Although that might be because back to back to the radio station for a second. uh, One of the managers thought it would be fun to name one of the on air personalities, Derek Jeter. Back in the, just to say, Derek Jeter worked at the station. Yeah, it it and he didn't work there that long, and it was only funny to the one person that decided to name him Derek Jeter. No, and and the the guy was better than that. Eh, that's debatable. All right. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, I I rolled my eyes at that part, but otherwise, to your point, 
again, what could have been a very tropey younger brother, especially because, you know, when he's we didn't talk about the scene when he's trying to appeal to Van Helsing to go with him. And he's like, it's a vampire. And then Taylor hits him back with it's my mom. So good. So good. The delivery is great. Like, what are you kidding? How is this even a debate? It's my mom. I'm going to help her. Um, It's such a great scene. And uh, he's just really believable. Like, I I totally buy everything that this kid is selling. The relationship that builds with him and Van Helsing is spectacular. Um, It's just a really nice fun relationship between the two of them and at the end uh you know when when he introduces himself to the family and he's like oh and you know my partner taylor hansen it's so nice very cute van helsing played by robert carradine now i almost fell backwards when i watched this movie again the second time because admittedly so much is going through my mind as I'm watching the film, and and I really didn't pay attention to the names in the opening credits, if I'm being honest with you. Um, it wasn't until the second time around I went, Robert Carradine. Who is Robert Carradine in this movie? And it's Van Helsing. But because he's got his hair grown out and he's got the, the hat and the trench coat on, I didn't realize it was him. So imagine my surprise... Upon the second viewing when I said, oh my God, that's Lewis from Revenge of the Nerds. The guy in the glasses that screams Panty Raid is now (laughs) playing Van Helsing in a Disney Channel original movie. This is not something I thought I would ever say and my (laughs) life is enriched for saying it. He was great though. I really liked him. He really was. He... He gave this film the Ghostbusters quality of I'm going to play it straight no matter what else is happening. And whether it was meant to be that way or not, it gave it the layer of humor that it needed. Yeah, but never to the point where it was cheesy. That's the thing. You're you're laughing with him, not at him in the scenes that he's in. Yeah. Final thoughts on Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. Um, I mean, I don't have much other than I was pleasantly surprised by this film. I admit that when we landed on it, I went, oh, this is going to be just like, don't look under the bed. I thought it was going to be really hacky. Um, like I said before, the, the biggest tell for me was when all of those vampire posters were all over the room. And I'm just thinking like, oh, here's some director who wanted his shot at directing like this epic vampire horror film. And instead he ended up with a decom. And I thought this was just going to spectacularly fall apart, but it really didn't. Those moments that I thought were really going to feel tropey or ripped off they ended up steering out of them and being some of the most successful parts of the movie. So I think the director did a great job. The director in question is Stephen Boyum, who also did Meet the Deedles. So you'll win some, you'll lose some. Yeah. I absolutely loved this movie. In terms of um, ranking it in, in regards to DCOM Halloween films... I think it was, I liked Don't Look Under the Bed. I know you didn't like it. Um, I liked it much better on the second time around. I liked it better than that, but not as much as the original Halloween Town. 
That's for kinda, me. This is better than Halloween Town for this sure. This is kind of where I put it. I I think that the cast was incredible. I thought the story was good. I thought it was well paced all around. Um, and I just thought it was a lot of fun. I thought that it was a good way to introduce vampire films to a younger generation that maybe was too young to see a Fright Night or a Salem's Lot. Um, and I think that other than some of the references, um, I think that the movie still holds up. I think that if you're a kid now growing up that didn't experience the 90s, I don't think you need to experience it to totally understand it. Some of it's going to seem dated. Some might fall flat. Some kid's going to go, well, why can't you just do that? It, because it's just not that easy. You know, it's much easier now than it was then, like, you know, with the personal ads and all that. But um, I think if you watch it for what it is, I think there's something there for everybody. I think a family can sit and watch this. And I am, I'm going on record now, and I'm saying that I'm absolutely adding this into my personal Halloween rotation every year. I liked it that much. But we want to know what you have to say about uh, Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your next Disney vacation, you can go to MagicalVacationPlanner.com and request me as your travel agent, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Don't forget listeners of the show can get a 10% discount with the code monoreal10 at checkout so to see all of Kelly's work and all of the services that she has to offer it's online at karma and kismet designs.com that's karma the letter n kismet designs.com we have been waiting a very very long time for this news to come out and it finally got dropped today on Disney Instagram that cast rehearsals have begun for the return of Fantasmic at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Very exciting. Sean is so excited. He didn't call it MGM. I didn't. But I'll go back to calling it MGM after this announcement. But seeing as this is such a moment, this has been years. It's been going on for years that yeah. there's been no Fantasmic. Yeah. So... Out of respect for everything that we went through to get here, I will be respectful and call it Hollywood Studios. Don't expect to hear me say it again, but I can't believe it has been two years since we've seen it. It's Disney, so they, of course they haven't given us a date for when it's going to reopen, but um, we know that it's coming. I guess they're going to announce its official return date at D23 Expo. That's coming up uh, shortly. Do you think we get Fantasmic or Tron first? Fantasmic. They have started to test Tron with riders, with actual riders.
but we will have Phantasmic back before we have Tron. There's no doubt in my mind. I still think Universal is going to open a third gate before we see <laughs> Tron. But Fantasmic is coming back. How excited are you? Let us know. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I just gave you the email. I just gave you the story. Uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything related to the show, it is always online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.